Hey, it's ODM from Light of Shade of Brown, and not just on a Sunday, but every day, every afternoon. And keep it locked with Step Off Magazine Production. Good internet. So y'all are tuned into another fabulous episode of Step Off Radio, the official podcast for Step Off Magazine. And boy, do we got a good show lined up for y'all. Joining me today, we got the homie Omar Velasquez filling in for Jose. And today on the show, we got Robert Gutierrez, aka ODM, one half of the iconic hip hop group A Lighter Shade of Brown. We're going to talk a little bit about the history of the group, the importance of A Lighter Shade of Brown, as well as their significance to Chicano representation in hip hop and a whole bunch of other cool stuff. So without further ado, Step Off Radio is proud to present our interview with ODM of A Lighter Shade of Brown. All right, man, well, um, no, first of all, you know, thanks for taking the time to uh, speak with us. For our listeners out there who may not be familiar with um, your work and your discography, you know, introduce yourself and tell them uh, who you are, what you do, man. Well, my name is Robert Gutierrez, a.k.a. ODM, one half of the group, Lighter Shade of Brown, 90s Hip Hop. Also, um, I'm an on-air personality, radio DJ here in the Inland Empire in Cali. On 99.1 KGGI, I host a co-host morning show with my uh, co-host, Evelyn Arrivas. I'm also on about maybe eight to nine other radio stations uh, under the iHeartMedia umbrella, which is uh, you can you know uh, you can hear me from here up north, California, New Mexico, um, and uh, Texas. And then uh, also, man, I'm a YouTube. I'm a daddy blogger, man. We uh, we have a YouTube channel called the RBG Fam, and it's me, my wife, my daughter Layla, and my son Elijah. So. With all that, that pretty much keeps me busy, man, year-round. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Yo, so uh, so jumping right into it, man, how were you first introduced to hip-hop music? Well, do you want me to get to detail, or you just want a small overview? No, I, mean, uh, I mean, let's get the details. I mean, like, you know, like, what kind of music were you listening to grow up in your household, and, you know, like, what were kind of, like, the musical influences? Okay, well, when I was growing up, um... There was two influences. There was my mom's influence, which was disco, 70s, you know, Saturday Night Fever, that whole 70s movement. Mm-hmm. Um, she played a lot of 80s. I mean, when we used to roll, roll in the whip, you know, here or there, she would play whatever was on the radio, which was pop at that time, which was anywhere from Elder Bars to, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm just shooting songs out. Uh, Remember the group uh, putting on the hits, Taco to, I mean, whatever mainstream radio played during the 80s, that's what I was about. New edition. Um, and then I grew up on like, uh, you know, Smokey Robinson as well, Marvin Gaye, all the classic oldies. 
And then number two, I had my uncle's influence, who was about eight years older than me, and his influence was, you know, the Paisley Park, the Prince days, Morris Day in the time, Jesse Johnson. Um, also, uh, I got a little bit of Adam Ant. You know, there was a big punk uh, wave at that time where, uh, you know, you had The Clash, you had uh, whatever he bumped, I played, and then, of course, there was hip-hop. And that was, you know... He used to have crates, and I used to dig through his crates, and he'd have anything from anywhere from Curtis Blow to uh, Ice T, you know, to the Breaking soundtrack. Um, basically, just classic hip hop, man. And like, how old were you, like, when you were like starting to like to listen to hip hop, just like casually? Casually, I, I got into it, man. I would say at the age of uh, shit, man, I was fifth grade. So that I was what uh, ten. I remember bumping. Um, like I said, my uncle he would take me to school uh, at that time in fifth grade and drop me off, and he would always play uh, "Hobo Scratch" by Malcolm McLaren, mm-hmm. and uh, that whole album, uh, "Buffalo Gals." And I remember specifically his, his song was "Hobo Scratch." Brownsville. How do you make this um, this jump from kind of listening to like music casually as a fan to going like, okay, well, I want to do that or I can do something like that? Like, when do you make that transition? Well, first time I started rapping or I ever decided to get on the mic was my eighth grade year. And um, some of the fellas, my homies at the time, they were, you know, they would gather around the lunch area and they would all rap. And one day I jumped inside the circle and, you know, I, I was listening to him. Well, finally I decided I wanted a piece of that, you know, 
of the cipher. So I said, yo, you know, how can I be down? What up? Like, you know, what I, what I got to do. And they told me to go home and write a rap and come back the next morning. Mm-hmm. So I said, all right. So that's what I did. I went home, I wrote me a verse to a school and basically auditioned for them. And they must've liked it. Cause you know, from that point on, I was rapping at high school. I was like junior high dances and, you know, there's where I became, and I just found the love as to writing my own lyrics. Mm-hmm. So, like, did you kind of get, like, a reputation at your school for, like, kind of being nice, like, on the mic and, um, you know, like, jumping the cypher? <laughs> you know what, man? My first year, like I said, in eighth grade year when I was 13, we all got love. So, yes, I would say yes as a team. Um, individually, uh, I wasn't recognized until I got – into ninth grade and so I guess the 10th grade really high school Mm -hmm. because I had put down the mic in like ninth grade because I had uh move move cities move counties I was living um out in Orange County that's where I grew up my junior high you know all up until my second year of high school but I had put it down because I started getting into trouble you know and uh uh just doing you know being a little tired so always into something you know what I mean Mm -hmm. not really taking rap serious I was playing baseball that was my first passion, but I was also, you know, hanging with the wrong crowd, so to speak. So I wasn't really, when I got to high school, it wasn't really my thing until I, uh, we moved, like I said, to Riverside and there's where I jumped back in it because there was dudes here in Riverside that were doing it at same thing in high school and they were rapping. I was like, man, you know, here I'm the outsider. And I was like, well, let me pick up a pen and see what's up and battle these fools and, there's where it all started, but as soon as they the school hit me, hear me spit, it was a different type of uh, response because everybody busting at that school was black, but they hear you know Max can do his thing. There's where I just noticed, man, the, the little the few uh, Mexicans that were at this school here in Riverside, they all they all have my back. They all started crowding behind me, and there's where I knew, okay, man, like. It, it was just the the, the rush that yeah. I would get by the cheer. So, like, at what point do you do you meet uh, DTTX? So, <clears throat> so I was rapping tenth grade sophomore junior year. My junior year, I uh, I was introduced to Bobby through my DJ at the time, DJ Fabe Love who happens to be the third face on the Brown and Proud cassette or first album. Mm-hmm. You see there's a third guy there. He's the one on the left. Well, I had met him first. And to make a long story short, my manager at the time was trying to make me the first Chicano rapper, Mexican rap, come out out of the West. Well, <clears throat> Kid Frost had already had just dropped. Some of you don't know what's happening, que pasa, it's not for you anyway, cause this is for the raza. 
so then my manager decided, well, let's put you together with somebody. Do you know anybody? And I was like, well, I know X, Y, and Z, but they're not Mexican. And that's what he was looking for at the time. Me, I didn't care, but, you know, he wanted to put together Chicano groups. So I was like, no, I don't. So my DJ at the time, who my manager had introduced me to, went to school with somebody, Babe Love. I went to school and introduced us to DWTS, which was Bobby. So <clears throat> I met Bobby through Fabian and um, Babe Love, and we're, we're introduced. So from that point on, we had just started, you know, writing together. We met up. We... Did you guys, like, click, like, when you guys first met? Or, like, you know, did you guys kind of have to get to know one another first? Like, how did that, that all go? Um, we, it's kind of like I always use the reference of two pit bulls. You know what I'm saying? With Nick, you know, chips on their shoulders, just sniffing each other's out, you know, and like, you know, like, what were you like? You know what I'm saying? But, but lyrically, mm-hmm. because, you know, when you're a rapper, you come, already come with an ego. At least I did. And, you know, coming from my background, from high school, being gassed up by the kids, the students there, all my homies, I'm sure he was too, in a sense, from his homies. So when we met, it was more of like a, competitive thing mm-hmm. you know it was just like any other rapper that i saw you know and then we were just told to put put ourselves in a room and start writing together well we were i don't you know we're trying to i don't know we were trying to at least i was i wanted my verse to be dope dope as is or if not as you know doper so it was kind of like that uh, but yeah we were put together and um we started like i said start making demos So, like, how old were you guys, like, when you guys first um, start Lighter Shade of Brown? Like I said, I was a junior. Well, it took us about a year to finally get a record deal. I was 16, going on 17. Bobby was four years older than me, so he was 20, 21. And when we got signed to Quality Records, I I was about, I think I was, uh, I was 16 and a half. 16 and a half, yeah, because I remember we dropped TJ Knights in the in the summer from my junior year going into my senior year in September. Yo, I got a question. So you, you got you got signed to Quality Records. Was that a goal for you guys to get signed to Quality Records? It wasn't a goal. It was just kind of like, you know, our record, our manager was shopping our deal like any other manager would go and label the label. I mean, heck, we went to Warner Brothers. We went to, uh, who else was at the time? Electra Records. Uh, you named it. Who was around. Uh, Delicious Vinyl. 
you know what I'm saying, um, at the time, Jive. We went to everybody. We went to Roofless, easy to nice. label, you know, priority. And uh, a lot of them passed, and it was came down to this independent label called Quality. So just shopping. And we the, hadn't heard of it. Just shopping the demo around, got you guys landed on the label. Pretty much, yeah. That was that when we finally had one that bit. Nice. And that was Quality Records. Yeah, it was a three-song demo. Nice. How did you think about the name? Uh, how'd you come up with the name um, ODM, or as far as the name Ladder Shader Brown? Well, ODM's name, my name was developed by, uh, it was a combination between two people. <clears throat> my buddy Mike, who I went to school with, and my my um, my manager, Cliff, um, they, they knew the same person. There was a guy named, from the hood, named ODC, One Deaf Clan, and that's what that stood for. He called himself ODC, but it was also the name of his group. And I guess my manager and Mike said, well, yo, you know, you should call yourself ODM. And I was like, well, what that mean? And they were like, well, you know, you're solo. You, you, you know, you, you say you're dope on the mic or whatever. And, you know, you're Mexican. So, boom, one dope Mexican, man. Just, And I was like, all right, I'm with it. Let's go. Because I used to go by Little R in school. That's what I, you know, Little Rob, whatever. And that was my rap name. But they wanted to give me a different name. So... I was like, cool, I'm with it. You know what I mean? Just put me in the booth. I want to I wanna get a deal. Like, ODM, I'm with it. Let's go. So they basically gave me the name. Uh, Lighter Shade of Brown was also discovered by my manager at the time. He had a lot of uh, hands-in on our first project because he had this vision. So with, manage, uh, management this, uh, played a big deal? Say again? Was it a huge deal for you guys to have a management to get you guys where you guys wanted to be? Was it a huge deal for us? Yeah. As far as record deal, was it a deal to have a manager? Just have a manager and, and, and like, you know, a manager in general. Yeah, man, you got to remember, I'm 16, 17. We're kids from the neighborhood. So for if somebody comes knocking at our door, showing interest and saying, hey, I'm going to make you an offer. I'm going to get you a record deal. We're going to get you out there. Man, that's missing to my ears. Right. That's, like, that's like telling the next high school student, hey, dude, I'm going to draft you straight to freaking. That's like Kobe getting the call from high school going to the Lakers. <laughs> you know what I mean? When you hear that, and this, this is your passion, hell yeah, every, every little piece of it was a, was a big deal. So what was it like suddenly being on like this platform? Like you said, like you're not even done with high school yet, and then you have this new visibility in a major way. Like, you know, you have a single on the radio, and then eventually you start making videos and receiving all this attention. What was it like? you know, getting that attention like that at such a young age. Bro, I already had an ego just being a young kid, just, you know, <clears throat> being an only child. <laughs> that just comes from being home, like a being a Leo, <laughs> you know what I mean, for me personally. Um, but uh, I just loved it, man. I took it as it came. I mean, being so young, remember, it happened so fast for us. I didn't really know how to accept it. I was just accepting it. I was receiving everything that came from it, from the record deal you know, to, to the meetings, to the to the, uh, to the studio time, to the to the release of our song, to the first time our record got spun. Like, bro, the, like I said, man, um, it was uh, it was wealth worth you know well worth the wait, man, for myself. Um, I'm sure it was for DWTX as well. I hear that. So you guys released your first album, Brown and Proud, in 1990. And on that um, album, you guys have, like, 
probably your guys' biggest hit on a Sunday afternoon. the park on a Sunday afternoon, me and the crew just jamming the oldie tune, sipping on a cold bottle of brewski, gave over swig, he passed it back to me, right about then up came some other homies, Micah, Eli, Pete, Jay, Smooth, Phil, and Larry, busted off the ice chest, Phil popped the cooler, Eli and Pete drunk brew, nothing better to do, Micah's cup yo was filled with bird, Jay, Smooth had a cold glass too, you know it, word, girls at the pennies mess repairing the food, the sky was clear and the weather was cool, kids at the playground playing on the merry-go-rounds all the cars cruising bumping their funky sound because it's sunday last day for a fun day back to business as usual come monday at the park everything went real smooth on a sunday afternoon we were chilling in the park just waiting for the sun to go What was like the process like working on that song, you know, and the album as a whole, you know, like, cause it's your guys' first album and like, did you kind of have to like come into like, uh, or grow in the writing full length songs as opposed to just kind of battle rapping, you know, going back and forth with friends and whatnot? <clears throat> that's a great question because that's exactly what it was. See, when I first started rapping, I was, I was listening to rock ham, big daddy Kane. Those were my major influences who I left out earlier in the conversation. Like when I got to sophomore year and they popped, like I was already listening to Rakim in eighth grade, you know what I mean? 13, 12, you know, Eric mm-hmm. B is president, you know what I'm saying? And then Big Daddy came out, Long Live the King Forever, and it was just a rap. So I, I grew up listening to battles, you know, rap, style rapping from them. Uh, so when I got my de- demo going, that's all I did. But again, going back to my manager, he had a vision. He had a concept mm-hmm. for his group. He says, look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to, I want you to, I'm going to give you a concept to write about. I want you to go home. I want you to write it. I'm going to give you the beat. Or sometimes we had the beat. Sometimes we didn't. Majority of the time we didn't. So, uh, I'm going to give you this concept, write the song. For an example, uh, Sunday afternoon. Okay. I always want you to write. Will Smith's on the radio right now. Boom, summertime. He's got a huge record. Well, show me how the Chicanos do it on a Sunday. You know what I'm saying? This is the song we're going to use. We're going to sample on a Sunday afternoon. Mm-hmm. And just keep that in mind. We're going to give you an oldie, but we want you to write. So me and Bobby, we went back. We went to the lab. We just wrote a song. So he, every single song was concepted um, just like that. Okay. And, like, was there, like, a learning curve at all? Kind of, like, crafting, like, um, a full song and then, like, hooks and stuff like that, too? Or did that come pretty naturally? You know, uh, of course you learn because I'm not – when I first started writing rhymes, it was, like, bars. Bars, you know, bars. Mm-hmm. My, they were like, no, you know what? For some reason, I learned – so I don't know who told me or taught me, but even before I met my manager, I was only writing one verses. But for some reason, I knew him. And I think maybe because I was listening to songs. You learn, you know, you learn off songs. You learn how long their raps are. When I was listening to Rakim or when I was listening to Big Daddy King, boom, you knew it was a verse, then mm-hmm. a hook. Um, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't really write hooks. I just wrote like one verse 
and then I would stop, and then I would end the song. Yeah. But I didn't learn about bars until I met my producer, Jam and James, and, and, and my manager, and he would come in and he would say, okay, look, man, here's how you count bars. One, two, three, four, two, two, three, four, three, and that's how you do it. He goes, I need a four-bar hook. I need a 16-bar verse, and James is going to lay it out for you. So once the, the beat was you know, given to us, it was already laid out like that with uh with the eight bar hook and then uh, a four bar uh sixteen bar uh verse and we would write to it. Okay. You just knew when the hook was coming in. So that makes sense. But yeah, it was a learning curve. I learned that. You know, later on I learned how to run the board just by watching in studio. You know, just little picking up little tricks of the trade here. And like you said, like uh when you guys started off like um there was like a, uh, like, there's like, there's like always been like a competitive edge to hip hop. So when you guys were writing, did you guys kind of push one another? Like, like oh, I want to have the best rap, you know, I want to, you know, trying to kind of top one another, like, like a friendly competition, you know, you kind of push one another. Mm, no, no, not, not between us. Uh, and I'll tell you why the majority of our songs were written separate okay. or, there was very, unless we were crunched for time and we were in the studio and we had to change something or, you know, I'd go in the corner, I'd write my verse real quick or Bobby would write his or change something up. We had to change something because we might have said something that, that, that our manager didn't think was going to fit the song, then we, we'd switch it up real quick. But, I mean, for the most part, if we were if we were in the apartment in Glendale where we wrote both the albums, yeah, like he'd be on one side of the room, I'd be on the other. But we, it was never like, yeah, man, let me hear yours. Okay, that's dope. Or you should do this. Like, there's no constructive criticism mm-hmm. between us two. It was like, here's mine, mine's done, get in the booth. Here's yours, get in the booth. Somehow it just worked. <laughs> <laughs> it just worked out that way? I mean, it just, I mean, the chemistry with with, with us. But each song, like song had a concept, though, you were saying? Each song, each song had a concept? And each each album had a concept as well. Yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah. yeah, because like when you guys listen, when you listen to like a song, it just goes so effortlessly. Like when you guys go back and forth, it doesn't even sound like you guys just wrote it separately. It almost sounds like you guys are like both on only the same page. Only on the songs, only on the songs where. Okay, for an example, like "Hey DJ," this is how Bobby and I would do it, and we would do a split of verse with three verses. I do my verse, mm-hmm. he come in, he do his verse, okay, it'd be my verse, hook, his verse, hook, and then we split a verse. That was the majority of the song. Okay, okay like, hey, DJ, um, yeah, I'd be right there, and I'd show him, look, man, this is going to be my last line, and you're going to come in here. Okay, cool. I wouldn't even hear the song, his part. He would just, like, you know could go in and do his part. And then I, I'd hear it for the first time while he was in the booth. <laughs> and then I'd be like, oh, okay, all right, that's dope, or whatever, or vice versa. Now I remember around the way, back, back in the day, I used to know a DJ who can mix it, pick it, pick it up, pick it up, I check one, two. Only now there's just more than a few. Rappers, MCs who boast and they brag. A bag full of hits, cause the shit will never lag. Fat rhyme, both the fat ready hop. What? It's the loco. Keep the game to the 
just the way it was. Unless um, it was maybe one of the few things that we, we did write together, you know, it wasn't until later on until we started writing songs together. Mm-hmm. Listening After back, listening back, I hear a lot of the hooks are samples. Are they taken from samples from the beat, or is that some, a, a different talent? Well, a lot of the songs. I mean, you you heard singing. It was it was in, it was it was hired. How do you say uh, background singers to right. come in? Okay. Um, if you're talking about our hits, Sunday afternoon, Latin active. That's Shiro. Shiro was the one that was. She was a cousin of Jam and James, who we got introduced to our producer Jam and James. One day, she was there in the studio singing on Sunday afternoon, and I just happened to walk in, and I caught her doing it. And I was like, yo, that's nice. dope. And there's where we, we met each other. But, yeah, for the most part, everything sung was, yeah, which was, or was, was uh, originally sang. I mean, she was singing a, a sample. We might switch the, if, I don't know if that's what you're asking, but she would, like, take the same lyrics from an original song and then just flip them. Right. You know, like, for an example, Latin active, we would say, you know, it would be, let's jam, let's jam, Latin act. And then when your body gets And the other one goes, let's jam, radioactive. It's that radio activity, and then we would just switch it like that. But she would come in, she'd lay, she'd sing it, and the rest is history. But Sunday afternoon, for the record, because I don't want it to seem like every song we sing was sampled, a Sunday afternoon, we were chilling in the park. That's original. That's original lyrics. Yes, that's why I asked that. I mean, I asked that because, I mean, it, they stand out. You know, the, the hooks do stand out as further away from the verses. And that's why I, wanted, that's why I asked that question because I was wondering, is that, a, is that a sample or is that a normal uh, an artist, an in-house artist? They make your song pop as well. If oh, that, definitely. Yeah. You've got to have a strong hook. Right. If your hook's not as strong as your verse or well, not stronger, then you don't have a hit record. Yeah. All right, go ahead. Mainstream, anyway. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, you guys were, like, part of, like, this wave of, like, uh, Chicano artists, like, in the early 90s, like you said, like, along with, like, Kid Frost and, like, Proper Dose and High C. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did you guys, but you guys, like, in particular, like, really stand out. Did you guys realize at the time that, or have any idea how big of an impact your guys' music was making, like, for the Chicano community, like especially in regards to like representation in hip hop? Never, never at that time. I, I, I don't realize it until now, uh, 20, 30 years later, only because we were so caught up in the moment and everything came so fast because of the movement, Chicano movement. Did Hey, 20, 30 years later that we were going to be forefathers of this open door that broke down barriers. Did I, hundreds of people, thousands are going to come up to me and say, you broke down doors? Did I ever think that? Hell to the no. Because we were in the moment, because we were starting it. It was Mellow Mayonnaise, Frost, and then us. That's the way it went. Mm-hmm. You had others, but if you want to, we're just talking strictly mainstream. It went Melomane, Spentirosa, Kid Frost, La Rata, and then us. And, and, and from there, they catapulted. You know, you, you had, uh, you know, Tres Delinquent, Delinquent Habits. You had Cypress Hill. You had, you know, XYZ come out. Mm-hmm. So, like, I but, uh, but, but 
to, to go back to answer your question, no, man, I, I didn't know because we were living in it. I, uh, it's crazy. I mean, we, you go back and ask me a learning curve. For an example, I'll tell you a story. We dropped a song called Pancho Villa on our very first album. And at the time, when we were concepting it, my manager said, hey, man, I need you to write like every other song. I need you to, you know, read upon Pancho Villa, man. We need to, we need to include a revolutionary leader. We need to, in your album, man, if we're going to call it Brown and Proud, we, we need to. It was kind of like we went political, but they wanted, he, they still wanted to share a piece of Chicano, of, of, of cultural, you know, Latino uh, history. So he said, go search Pancho Villa. And, 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 you know, so I went to the library one day and I started reading and reading, reading, reading up and I would take those lyrics and then I would just take those lyrics and write a song about them. The revolutionist, Pancho Villa himself, smooth Mexican vato, no for robbing the wealth, tough Hispanic bandit general in his own time, whatever came about, he was always down for the crime, slang is So here we are, fast forward a year later, our album drops, boom, we're out, we're doing shows at colleges, we're doing the college circuit, and we're paying our dues, and we're doing uh, shows for Mecha, you know, Mecha clubs, mm -hmm. and because at the time there wasn't Chicano studies in anywhere, there wasn't Chicano art, there wasn't shit back then, like they were fighting for that at that time, at these colleges, but we would do Mecha, Mecha was around. So it was somebody from, I don't know where it was, either it was L.A. It was uh, L.A. or it was uh, Sacramento or we were somewhere up north, Berkeley or somebody got a hold of us and said, hey, we love you guys. We love your album. We love what you represent. But the information that you're giving on the San Pancho Villa is the wrong information. <laughs> that is his word. And there's where I started getting, you know, an earful on Chicano movement and, and the real story. Now they say that's his story, not history. That's the white man, you know, and, 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 you know, so everything was a learning curve, bro. Like I tell you, and that's just one of the stories of many. So that's good. So that's crazy. Like you said, like everything is just like, you're, you're learning it as you go pretty much. Exactly. And I take it with all humbleness, man. I, I, I myself, because, Hey, if someone wants to educate me and teach me from something that some I did really didn't know, and I just went and seeked out. Then okay, show me, enlighten me. It was opportunity for you to grow. Absolutely, definitely, absolutely. I hear that. What is like? How does it feel like to kind of be like the like the first like Chicano hip hop artist like making songs like that though? Because you guys really are like pioneers in that respect. I mean, like, there was not really anyone doing stuff like that prior to you guys. Like I said, man, it was just a, uh, 
it's a blessing to be praised for it now than back then, which we were kind of, but I don't think I was really focused on it because, you know, there were the fans that really loved your music because they heard you on the radio. That's what we thought. Oh, they love our music because, you know, it's on the radio. Um, and they go out and buy it. They come and get the farm. We sign an autograph. Cool. We go home. We're in household names. But then we didn't realize it didn't click or trigger to me that people out there that are listening to our music, there are those fans out there that are in the military fighting in the war that are listening to our music, that are taking them back home to L.A. or East L.A. or wherever they're from where they can't be with their family. Why does it take them back? Because we're talking about stuff that they grew up with mm-hmm. or that they could relate to. And that's what our music did. So you had, you know, there's where I started thinking, oh, it's clicking now. Man, people are relating to our music. That's what it is. And I remember I was I was young, bro. Like I, but it, I started learning. Like man, I'm really touching these people, in you know, Saudi Arabia or wherever wherever they're at, Iraq. Um, the Chicanos out there, man, and they're bumping your music, <laughs> and and they're writing in letters. I got you know, getting letters from jail, and. All positive, not negative. It was all good. Did you guys have like a fan club or anything like that back in the day where people could write um, letters? <sighs> we did. It would go to the record label. We'd see some of the letters. Some of them, my manager, a lot of, they would go to him. And he would like open some of them up and he would say, hey, so-and-so, man, they want you to sign this poster and blah, blah, blah. And we, I remember signing a few of them. And I remember even... And I remember his name, Isaac. He was part of the Make-A-Wish Foundation. He was, he, was, he was, you know, his last wish was to see us perform and meet us. So we would get stuff like that from fans, you know, and, and, and we would go meet them and take pictures with them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just, just be there for them. The message man. was getting out there. The message was getting out there for you guys. Even though you guys were writing, you were living in the moment, but the message was being heard message was being heard. And I think it was a more cultural shock, right. if anything, for the people. I'm infatuated with the record label because there's no much record labels nowadays. And the fact that you guys were signed to a record label and compared to the DIY movement, I don't know, I just, I'm infatuated with the record label that you're, you're able to get that done and the fact that they had your back makes it badass, in my opinion. It was great. And we had, we were family up until third album and quality was an independent label. They were distributed through an independent company, um, pump records. And anyway, uh, we had gotten so popular, famous, whatever you want to call it, that, uh, came to a point where, um, they didn't want to put out any money. To, for promotion, we got invited to do Lollapalooza, big concert, man, in Chicago. And every label, every artist you could imagine was there. If you got invited to perform at Lollapalooza, man, you're playing with all the greats from different genres. 
There's a magical place with band after band playing magical music while you get suntanned. Lollapalooza. Here comes the coolest apparition this summer. Smashing Pumpkins, Beastie Boys, The Breeders, George Clinton, L7 plus mucho more. Between bands, look into the future down the Lollapalooza superhighway. The online cyberlink that lets you talk long distance via computer. Lollapalooza 94, a hypnotic way to spend a hot spell. This MTV Lollapalooza tour report is brought to you by... And our label was supposed to pay our money, our way there. That was the only, that was the only uh, thing, and uh, they didn't want to. So at that point, we had decided, you know what, man, it's time to part ways. Obviously, we're outgrowing the label, and uh, we ain't, you know, we don't have the money to just come out the pocket. You know, we we ain't, you know, well, the only money we seen was from touring, you know what I mean? And we were getting jacked by a man conversation, but I mean, you know what I'm saying? That's, we didn't see any record sales yet because we hadn't recouped our money, which is another thing you have to do when you sign a record label. So we had zero money, zero funds to go out. And, um, and then we were done with that, with that, with that situation. But as thank quality, obviously, I'm going to end it on a positive note for taking the time were believing in us as an artist, as a group, as a brothers of light skin to take that chance and take that gamble. And it happened to work for them. Both of us. Yeah, absolutely. Like for your guys, the second album, like Hip Hop Locos, was that released through uh, Quality as well? Yeah, that was our second and our last album on Quality. Now on that record, um, you guys actually had a, a a remix of Spill the Wine that DJ Muggs of Cypress Hill did. I said the clock struck 12 when the lunch bell rung. Run. Dumb did it, here come all the bottles run. run. Not to the cafeteria, but to the parking lot. Six pack 40 out, that was the spot. I suddenly thought, uh-huh. so should I do it mine? Or would a teacher come along and make me spill my wine? But not only that, I'll be risking the suspension. And pay close attention, not to mention buck whippings. But why should I sweat it? I had your class next. So I expect the set to go away when I sweat My homie Muck said But wouldn't I be a fool if I got kicked out of school Holding the brewski inside of my palm Yo, here comes the teacher, everybody at calm Approaching me first, he said Son, your mom, before you spend some time You better spill that wine Was that a production? Was that something you guys did in the studio? Or was that something that you guys like sent out the mugs and like, or the label sent it over to him and then he just remixed it and sent it back to you guys? Uh, we sent him the vocals. He worked on it. And uh, I remember when we showed up to the studio, we went to the mixing session. Mm-hmm. So he already had laid our vocals, he laid the beat and everything else. We went to the last final session and we saw him in action when he was actually mixing it down. Okay. And that was it. I got you. And like, what was your experience on that second album like? Like, did you guys... Yeah, about logos? Yeah. On, on Brown and Proud, like that was your guys' first album. So for the second album, did you guys like feel a little bit more comfortable, I guess, you know, like... um working on the album you guys kind of got the formula kind of we figured did, out we did man we felt like we were in demand now 
by our fans. We, we knew that we wanted to give them, we wanted to give the, bring the heat, you know what I'm saying? A second time around this album, this time was concepted, believe it or not, the whole hip hop locals movement was Bobby DWTX's idea because we were trying to decide, okay, what are we going to do on this next album? Brown and Proud was a, it was a theme. It was, uh, it was a story that we told. What are we going to do on the second album? And what are we going to implement from, you know, from the last album to this album? What are we going to carry on or carry over, I should say? Mm-hmm. Well, so we brought, you know, a young uh, Elvario. We did a song called uh, Elvario on the Brown and Proud album. And then we had a second and we had another song on Hip Hop Locals called A Young Vato, where it, was, it tells a story about a homie named Mario growing up as an adolescent. On the first album, on the second album, you know, he's older now, and, and he's, uh, you know, he's in his 20s, whatever. So he grows through the through, through the albums with us. Uh, on Pancho Villa, we had that on the first album. The second album, we had uh, Aviva Zapata, Emiliano Zapata. So we wrote we did another revolutionary leader on that album, but then we also went a little bit more hip hop. I would say as far as more rugged with the beats, you know, um, Bobby, DWTX, he had learned to produce at the time he picked up the SP 1200 and he wanted to say, he decided he wanted to produce a few tracks on the album. Mm-hmm. So he did the hip hop locals, the main song he did, uh, check it out. And, um, he did a couple others. You might ask us why we call ourselves the hip-hop locos Baking like Boston beans, farting out our vocals No laxative for the shit that we kick So pass it on to Mike, Joe Mikey, he likes it Others disapprove of the move that we swing Not a brown underground, not a pop thing Yo, you gotta come on Hey, yo, we're in that phase I switch pop to hip-hop to pop both ways Versatile, some should learn the definition If money is the key, the sucker, why you keep dissing? The rap scene is hectic when it is from when it starts But most rap groups today I'm gonna pop charts. Don't get us wrong, we prefer the funk better. But a job is a job for the real go getters. Standing in the spotlight, here come the bros throwing down with the brown or the hip hop loco. So I would say our style changed a little bit we we called ourselves versus style it was versus style like versatility but we were just it was diverse type of uh music that we put out we do something for the radio we do something for the street we do something you know for the ladies you mm-hmm. know with brownies you know what i mean and we always we wanted to touch everyone with it so to speak at the time interrogation was there with the cops with the whole rodney king situation so we wrote a song called Interrogated Cause I'm Brown, but from our point of view. Mm-hmm. So we invited ALT and, you know, Latin Alliance and so forth on there. And um, uh, the funk was in too, I remember. The, what's it called? Um, wait, hold on. I think I'm getting my albums mixed up. I think it was, was it Lane? No, 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 no. Yeah, 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 yeah. You had Snoop and the death row was already popping. So we wanted to come with some jink funk shit, you know, like, uh, I think it's, uh, 
that ain't where you're from, it's where you're at. Mm-hmm. And um, and then we use the uh, I like it song called I like it. We use cameos, you know. So music we implemented had always had to do with some type of funk song or oldie. Um, so that was the difference between the two albums right there. Yeah, because um, homies. Yeah. Homies was on our second album. shot a video for that one too right that was like one of your guys's big we, singles off of that we shot it yeah we shot homies in la and that was that that was our video for that we also did spill the rhyme off of that remember there was two versions we had spill the wine which was on the first album and then spill the rhyme was actually off the first album but it was between the first and second i want to make it so it was like a remix that we made mm-hmm. called spill the rhyme um, and then we had Spill the Wine, the DJ Muggs remix. <laughs> so we had three different remixes for that. Uh, but we ended up shooting the video for Spill the Rhyme, um, the pop version. Nice. Um, and then Homies came, like I said, on that album. And I think we only had one single. Now that I think about it, we only had one single off of, off of Hip Hop Locals. If I'm not mistaken. Oh, I'm sorry. If you want a groove, that was our second single off that album, and uh, we shot that video in LA as well. But after that song, I think we were we were done, and we had did a couple soundtracks. You know, Mi Vida Loca. Um, we had Hey DJ, and we did a song called Two Lovers, and uh, that song was off of that soundtrack. And then we also did another soundtrack. For I like it like that. And was that was that yeah. uh, was that in between hip hop locals and laying the cut, or was that following uh, laying in the cut that you guys did the the soundtrack stuff? The soundtrack was in between hip hop locals and uh, and laying in the cut. Okay. Yeah, that was towards the end. Internets, don't touch that dial. Step off radio. We'll be right back. But first, a couple messages from friends of the show. Yo, 
what's happening, Step Off Magazine listeners. A quick break from the amazing content you've been listening to. One more here from the IA Podcast. You may be asking yourself, what is the IA Podcast? The Aid is a local radio show where we interview up-and-coming artists, creatives, and anyone who would like to share their backstory about why they do the things that they do. We dive deep into the life of the artist, bringing in-depth interviews, sharing stories in a raw and unfiltered format. A true podcast focusing on the artist for the artist. You can listen at iapodcast.com and on all streaming platforms. On the iTunes app, search IA Podcast. On the YouTube app, type in IA Podcast. That is I-A-T-E Podcast. And we hope you enjoy. All right, back to Step Off Magazine. Peace. Like on your guys' third album, you guys actually that was put out through Mercury, correct? Yeah, laying in the cut was Mercury. Uh, we switched management, switched labels. Mercury, Mercury threw out Polygram. And was that like a was that like an easy transition, or did you guys kind of have to shop around for like a new a new label? Like once you started, we ways? shopped around. It was easy for my manager, my new manager at the time, because. Uh, we already had this, we were already established. So it was like, all right, now we got options. Mm-hmm. But it was like, you know, at the time he, he was thinking like his out of his pocket, like most managers be. And he decided to go for the money. And he was like, well, look, man, I'm going to get my money. It's like, this is what they're offering. This is what you guys get. And this is what, you know, so we ended up going long story short. And it was an East coast label. And um, which kind of sucked because turns out they didn't know anything about us uh, as far as our, uh, they didn't know what our road was to our success. They didn't know about Lowrider Magazine. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what that circuit meant to us. They didn't know what that whole lowriding scene community meant. The whole they didn't culture. know that that had something to do with hip hop mm-hmm. as well. So that was the big red, biggest red flag. Um, when we heard that, we were like, man, dude, that's our fan base. You don't know about them and you don't know where to put our music at. We have a problem here. So what they would do is, you know, they got big money. So they just, all right, you know, I'll give you the, you know, million dollar video. I'll give you this. I'll give you that. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, then we stop fucking with you guys. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what happened. You know, so from the they jump, got other they, priorities. from the jump, they got they Janet get, Jackson, they got uh, all these rock, you know what I mean? To worry about. So like from the jump, they didn't know how to like the market you guys pretty much because they didn't know anything about you. Pretty much. It was just like an investor investing money into a home, but they don't know nothing about the neighborhood. So like, did, so, did they not know like, um, like how to promote the album or something? Or like, how did they drop the ball on that? Like, they didn't. That's my, that's my point. They didn't. You guys were like putting all these songs on like, uh, soundtracks, like Mavita Loca and laying the cut, like these like Latino centric films. And they still didn't know that 
those were the lanes the promote you guys like you said like the lowrider magazine circuit and all that nope it's like how could i put it in perspective like <laughs> no nah, i don't want to use that scenario that might bite me in the ass um the, well it's like corporate america bro come on it's like anything <laughs> man you got one man sitting down at dinner Somebody brings them an idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a movie. Hey, man, I got the hottest thing right here. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, cool. Show me numbers. That's all they want to see. What are they doing? Oh, okay. Well, they did X, Y, Z here. All right. Where they come from? LA. All right, cool. So what are we going to do? All right, let's sign up. We'll sign up for this deal and put more money into them. That's exactly how it went down, bro. Mm-hmm. We'll give you an advance. We'll give you all this money up front. We're going to put your album out, but it's, you can put something out, but bro, come on. I am from an era where we walked around with cassettes and back, our backpacks mm-hmm. and we went to neighborhoods and crew. We went to Hollywood Boulevard, bro. And we were handing out our shit like flyers. And by the time we left, the whole boulevard was bumping our, our stuff. It was guerrilla marketing, man. That's mm-hmm. what it was. But these guys had no clue. They thought by, oh, a couple lads in the magazines here or there, I gave them a video that they didn't have to do the groundwork. That's what it is. You gotta have, Unless you have somebody in-house that knows what the fuck they're doing and knows how to work the streets and knows somebody, you know, you got to have a P. Diddy of your label. Before P. Diddy was P. Diddy, he was at a label. Yeah. He knew. He knew the artist's sign. You got to know what you're selling. You know what I mean? I can't pick up a, I can't go sell cars if, if, if I've never driven it. Like if I, if I don't know what I'm selling you, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Wow. So that's what it is. So, so we parted ways. They forgot about somehow. We, they didn't even, they let us out of our country. They were like, all right, peace. We were like, all right, peace. Is that when you guys? And that was the end of the. That was when we split up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of how it went. So, so that's when you guys went on Bobby. Uh, there's where I started. I was done. I was like, like I was him and I were already getting into beef. You know, we always had. We didn't have the best relationship. Me and me and Bobby. Mm-hmm. And um, and and so at that point, that was just a breaking point. I was like, "All right, I found a new love, which was producing." Um, when we were on Mercury, we put out "Laying in the Cut." I know we failed to talk about that, but we we put that album out. And that was our third album. That's when Hey DJ came off of. Uh, but "Laying in the Cut," we did "Hey DJ." If you want to groove, we did "Dipping in My Ride." And um, all three of those songs, singles that we did on that album, I produced. Okay. Because at that point, that's when I started producing on the on the third album with Mercury. And um, so once we parted ways, I just took my production and I started producing, opening my doors to other rappers. And there's where I started. I don't know if I'm getting too ahead of myself, but I'll stop right now. Yeah, so like you guys, um, so you guys... 
Did you guys go like on a hiatus, or did you guys like officially like break up? Like, like I'm done with this. Like you, you kind of like the straw that well, broke the camel's back. The way I look at it is two ways. Hiatus is to me taking a break. Break up, you break up. You never go back mm-hmm. to me. Him and I, we didn't. We went on a, to me. We went on a hiatus. I never physically said, "Yeah, we're fucking up, man." There's no more of us. I never said that. Mm-hmm. He never said that. You know, um, we just took a break, hiatus, and between ninety five and ninety seven, we we took a yeah good break for like two years. We didn't even talk really. And you guys are just kind of doing your own thing, like you were producing, and he was still rapping. I was producing, and he was still, yeah, I think he was still touring, or I think he may have been doing some production too. Not sure, but I was finding myself my noodle with my noodle, which was production and rapping, you know. But I, I want, I think I wanted to play the scenes at, at that point behind the scenes as, as a producer. And there's where I started like producing like, you know, Slow Pain and Mr. Mr. Capone and Mr. Shadow, like all these like West Coast artists, kind of artists, man. Baby Bash, Frog, like they all came to the studio. And would you say that you enjoyed uh producing more than MCing? I wouldn't say more. I would say just as much. Just as much. Yeah. So in between this time, like you're you're producing for all these artists. So like, what's the catalyst for you guys to return back in nine in ninety seven, and then release your guys' album on Thump Records? Honestly, bro, Thump it was never on Thump. Funny you say Thump. We were never signed to Thump. No, I don't. I don't know. Thump Records ended up buying our catalog. Is what they ended up doing. Uh, not our catalog, our full catalog. Uh, I think they. No, they never bought any of us. It was the, okay. Let me back up. 97, body, I'll tell you exactly how it went down. Body gave me a call. Said, look, been a minute, man. You know, check this out. I got this, I got this deal on the table. There's this record label in the Bay Area, Oakland, man. Greenside Records. You know, they're offering us a deal, man. I know you broke. I'm broke. <laughs> <laughs> They're giving me some money. And I ain't going to lie. Like, I was, bro, I was down to my last rest then. You know, I was still producing. I was, I saved my shit, you know what I mean, from the previous years. So I was all right. Mm-hmm. But um, that's basically what the conversation was like. Said, Look, you want to do this or not? That's how much I got for you. I'll put this in your bank account next week. I was like, let's do it. And it was money. It was business that brought us back. Mm-hmm. So we signed the green side. 97, we went up north. We did that album, Roger Shader Brown, self-titled. And um, we were there for about a month, working on the album. During that album, they liked it the way it was turning out, so they offered us the second album. Well, all right.
Yo, what's with the shooting and the killing? My homie got four to five years for drug dealing. The whole world's changed, now everybody wants a piece of the action. It's now take and give, see that's how it is. Jealous, why must we be so selfish? For people of the world be acting so rebellious. Think about the freedom in the country that you're living. That explains it all, you even got your own religion. Think about the luxuries in life, like life itself. Huh? And not being greedy for the wealth, which yours is to come. Who put you in that situation? Having three babies with no education, no steady income, no steady job. Got you feeling so broke that you wanna go and rob. You feel so greedy, and that's no way to act. You're just down on your luck, and you can't hold it back. That album was done. I can't. We came back down home. That's when they wanted to do the second album. I said, "All right, on my terms." I said, "We do the album down here because honestly, that was the least favorite of me personally. That was the least favorite album of, of all our albums." And I just, I don't know if it was the vibe or, or what it was, but I said, "We do it here. I'm vibing right now in my studio. We do the album here, and I'm gonna produce it." Mm-hmm. Bobby was with it. Bobby said, cool. Bobby, you know, really enjoyed hearing my production at the time. It was probably the most lit time I was, I, you know, I was hot at that point as far as <laughs> tracks were, were going. I was producing every Chicano artist you can imagine. Just knocking them out. Boom, 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 boom. Because that's how I was making a living. Mm-hmm. We went back on the road off that first album with Greenside. Again, another smaller label trying to ride the coattails, you know, they did off of uh, our old success, you know, old promoters and doing shows, but they were so independent that, uh, you know, um, it was just, uh, it was, it was tough, man. It, it, it was hard because they didn't know anybody really at radio. That was their weakest point. And uh, they try to do everything on their, on their, on themselves. Normally you'll hire somebody who has ties with radio yeah, and they'll go and, they have a bunch of radio stations underneath their belt, and they'll just go meet with them. Yeah. And the record, and it gets played based on relation. You got to know people, Another conversation. Right? No people in the con- you got you to know people in the industry. So, right, exactly. So that didn't last. It was just, I don't know if they sold units or if they did, but what I did hear is they did strike a deal with Thump, and I think it was just those two albums that they made the deal with, with Bill, uh, with Thump Records. And that's how their name came involved. Thump licensed a few of our um, songs from our older album, mm-hmm. but they never owned it. Yeah. So when did you get into radio? You're in radio now, right? Okay. So let me keep the timeline going here. In 99, we dropped that second album. Left turn at the park where the homies greet in the sunshine. 
you worldwide, I make them shake Stepping out the ride in my Pele, yeah Girls yelling out the window, OBM come here You know you can't knock the hustle, it's the way that we play It's just another sunny day in California, hey Sunny day got a little noise here or there. One of the singles, and we decided uh, I was I was done. I was done once again. I was like uh, Bobby and I. I wasn't done. I I I, I kind of <laughs> I had my own thing going on during the second album. I was producing, like I mentioned. I had my own label. I was starting Brown Royal Brown Royal Records, Brown Royal Entertainment. And I was putting out compilations and as a producer and rapping on them. Bobby rapped on a couple of them. Well, lack of bands. I didn't have enough money to push it. I was one man. I didn't really have the team that I to assemble because I was caught up making beats. I found myself just working, making beats, which was my craft, which was my passion. So I strayed away from the record record side of it, label side of it. I, that's just too much, man. I just want to be talent. So I told Bobby, I said, look, radio stations hit me up saying they're looking for, they want to know we want to do radio. Actually, they hit me up. I was on the street with my posters. And um, the program director comes down and says, hey, man, uh, heard you on the radio. Hey, you sound good. Uh, remember where I interviewed you five years ago? And I asked you where you see, see yourself in five years. And you said doing radio? Because that's what I had told him. And I said, yeah, man, I really, really enjoy that. He goes, man, you, you want a shot? I was like, hell yeah. Like, let's do it. Like, because when you're producing, I was living beat to beat. You know what I'm saying? Like, track to track, album to album. So, and, and here I have to hold up a mortgage. So some, sometimes money came in, it was tight. Sometimes, you know, I was okay. But I got tired of chasing that. Like, and plus there, there was other shit going on in, in, in the studio. And, you know, these, we had riff raps coming through, and I had it in my home. So you can imagine my home with a bunch of riff raps. Like, that's like a dope dealer selling drugs out of his house. You know what I mean? Like, you can get all kinds of riff raps there. So... Finally, I said, look, man, this is what I'm going to do. After three years, I said, I'm going to do radio. Bobby, why don't you come with me, man? Let's do a show together. Two of us, we'll call it Lighter Shade of Radio or something. Hell yeah. You know, we'll do something with it. And he was like, I'm cool. No, first off, he was like, how much? How much are they going to pay us? How much are they going to pay us? And I said, bro, it's, 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 <laughs> it's, it's something new that we're stepping into. Mm-hmm. Like you, we're not even DJs. We're not, we're not, we're green. We have to be taught. We have to be trained. It's like anything else, you know? And he was like, I'm cool. Maybe this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to stay here doing the rap shit. So I was like, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do. And that's kind of where we just left it at that. And from that point on, <clears throat> I showed up at the radio station that day. And I just learned, man, for a week, two weeks straight, run the board, 
Uh, I started doing overnights, doing a little graveyard shift. That turned into nights, became music director, and then eventually got to Kiss FM in L.A., doing both for a minute. And now I'm hitting, and mind you, Bobby and I, we, we hadn't, we weren't really talk. We didn't talk. We, I hadn't talked to him for a good, see, that was what, 2000 to like, man, a good, a good 10 years. I would just hear where he'd been because he was still touring. He grabbed somebody else, went on tour. We do it still through the music because that's how he would make his income. Mm-hmm. Bobby never stopped performing, but that's what he decided he wanted to continue doing. So I said, so I was like, all right, hey, man, y'all going to be in Texas? I go, no, that's not me. It got to the point where I stopped performing. I, I just, you know, it's it's like when I picked up producing, this was the next feeling. Like, this was my next, like, I've always had my hands in different things, man. And if, if I found something that I really love and I'm passionate about, I'm going to stick with it, man, and, and and see what I can do with it. So radio was that next thing. And um, so when it came to doing shows, like, they would tell me, hey, you're going to be over here. But, nah, man, that, that's not me. Oh, okay. That, that's him. Okay, cool. So they ain't going to be the whole group? Nah, man. <laughs> I'm not doing it. Okay, man. And that's the way it was for 10 years until I got that call one day. I don't know if I call it. I think I think I got a call from Art LeBeau, Art LeBeau's people, mm-hmm. and this was 20, 2015. Fast forward, fifteen years later, and they said, "Hey man, Art wants you to come perform at his show, but he wants to see you'd be down. You know, if you can get a hold of Bobby." You know, and I, I don't know what was the, uh, what, what it, it was, really wanted. I, maybe I really wanted to see, like, my emotion was just like, dude, it's been so many years. And maybe it was that itch. Maybe it was that feeling again. I don't know. Because Bobby was always there. I could always pick up a phone and call Bobby. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and we'd, we'd be back working again. Bobby, that's one thing. He never wanted to stop working. Like, he always wanted to make new music, make new music. But we also had a relationship that was off and on, like a light switch. And so when, when, when you can't get along, how are you supposed to make good music together? Yeah. With that animosity. It's just not going to work for whatever reason. So, but, so he, he never stopped. So when I picked up the phone... I said, hey, man, look, this is the situation. Art's asking we can come, you know, do this show if you're down to do it. Come on, man. Let's get it. Like, I was in already high spirits, man. Like, I, I'm coming off of a, you know, 15-year run already. I'm, I'm in radio. I'm good. I got 25 years in my belt as, in, in, as an artist still with my name. And... And I'm, 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 I just got married, and I, my, my life is cool. Like, I'm good. Let's, let's, let's let bygones be bygones, you know. And let's just go perform, man. Let's just do our songs like we know. And so we met up in Vegas. 
or state line, went on stage and uh, it was like nothing. Like we had never left that stage. And we just got up on stage. We knew each other's lines. We knew each other's went breaths, when to take breaths, when not, who was going to. And we just did that same vibe, man. It was like, man, that was the craziest thing ever. And from that point on, there's where we kind of reunited and we started doing shows on the road again, man. It was just that vibe, that feeling like, damn, I just shake back. Well, the word started getting back. Like, man, they're doing shows again. Promoters are calling. They want to do, you know, they want to perform here, perform there. The reunion tour and blah, blah, blah. And so we did that for about a year. And, um, Um, and here's where it ended. At that same Art LeBeau show, and this is the way God works, man. At the same Art LeBeau show in 2015, Valentine's Day, uh, we met Lou, Lou uh, Pizarro, Operation Repo. The big Mexican dude used to come, like, repo your cars on TV. Mm-hmm. And he used to be a, uh, he used to be bigger, him and uh, some other bald dude. Anyway, I knew him from that. And he said, hey, man, I'm a big fan of you guys, bro. Check this out. Uh, we need to do something, man, with you guys, like a reality show or, or document your guys' history, man. You guys are the first to open up and the doors and X, Y, Z. So let's do you think we could do something. I'm like, let's do it. I'm down. So we started talking, and uh, Bobby and I, they they came on the road with us, well, him and his camera crew, and we filmed a couple of shows. All of a sudden, our new project is Lighter Shade of Brown, Lighter Shade of Reality. You know, 20 years, 30 years later, here we are. Mm-hmm. And um, this is where it was kind of like a VH1, like where they are now. Well, here's the road to a new album. Remember when TLC, they were going to start, they were going to do a new album. They did a whole ep- series on it on VH1. Well, this is kind of that way. That's how we envisioned it. So we're going to tell you the story, where you guys been at, and um, just let off. So they recorded a bunch of stuff. And unfortunately, you know, he passed away in 2016, man. And uh, that's where it ended But it was crazy because we reunited a year before when we started again. Yeah. Um, things back up. Bobby wanted to do an album, his new music. But I wasn't there. I wasn't there. And I'm still sure. I'm, I don't even know if I'm still there. But I wasn't there with him because I wanted to make sure him and I were right. We were straight before we go back in the studio and start doing records. Mm -hmm. Because to me, time is everything. Like, we did these last two albums that, you know, and look what happened. Like, I I just, uh, sadly to say, it became a business for me. But that's the way it turns into because why I'm married. Now I've got kids. i got to put food on the table. Yeah. Best believe, hell yeah. There's only so many hours in the day. I want to make sure every hour counts. So that's where I was. Plus, I knew he had a condition that he had, you know, 
developed throughout the years, and I want to make sure he was stable enough to record an album. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that, that's where it fitted. You can visualize that, man. You know, the history that you guys have together. Yeah, bro. I can see you talk, man. I'm enjoying this. Good, man. Good, because there's, <laughs> there's a documentary that's already recorded. <laughs> that was going to be my next question, if anybody documented it, but you just led, up, you led to it. It's done. Right. It's ready to be released, but nice. we, it's been sitting in um, their hands for three years because they've been looking for um, like a distributor. They're trying to they're trying to use the music, but they don't they they, they can't they, they want to charge they want to charge them so much to license our music. You know what I mean? Yeah, the rights. So we're trying to find out who owns it, not owns it, but the record label. You know what I mean? They want to charge them an arm and leg, and they don't have that kind of bread. But it's done. I've seen it. It's like it was going to be a reality series, but it it ended up being an hour and a half documentary, lighter shade of reality. People will trip the fuck out, bro, <laughs> if they see this. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, bro. Any hopes of it ever uh, coming out, or is it just up in the? Oh air? yeah, there's lots of hope. I'm just when the time is right. Like, damn, I just want to grab that shit and release it now. You know what I mean? Um, but uh, when the time is right, you know, once they get things situated, it's like what they want to do. And if it does, it does. If it doesn't, well, you know, I'm still here to do another one. <laughs> like, I'll tell my story. You know, it just sucks because Bobby's on that tape. Mm-hmm. And, and he tells his side. And you won't get that ever again. Yeah. Because he's gone. Were you like, guys, that's the last. Were you guys in a good spot when he passed? Oh, yeah. yeah. We were, uh, we're doing it. We did our last show in Fresno. It was a car show. And uh, he had a girl with him, his daughter. And uh, they were going to drive back. I flew back. They were going to drive back. They went to take a drive down the coast, man, and go to the beach. Mm-hmm. And then on Sunday, you know, I invited them over for a barbecue. They said, come over, man. Pun intended. That's some carne asada. Yeah. So he's like, all right, well, I'll hit you up, blah, blah, blah. I said, all right, bet. So I never got that call. And he ended up in Vegas. So... The next call I get, I guess they did. They, he, she wanted to see Vegas, or he wanted to go, or they both wanted to go. So uh, he was like that sometimes. Sometimes he called me, sometimes he wouldn't. Mm-hmm. But I really expected him. I thought, you know, he was turning over a new leaf. Like, there's a lot that went down that you guys don't know, but, you know, Bobby was starting to really come around from his alcoholism, from his condition. You know, he had his family with him. Cool, he's going to come over. We're going to. We're going to chill, you know, and, and just, you know, bond like boys. But never got that call. He must, he ended up in Vegas, from what I heard. And then I ended up getting a call that week and uh, from his cousin up north and said, Hey, man, Rob, uh, where are you at? Are you sitting down? What you doing, man? I'm like, Nah, what's up? What's going on? He was like, Dude, Bobby passed away. And that's when I first heard the news. And um, I was like, shit, I was in the middle of a meeting. 
at work. And um, I just got up. I walked out. So I had contacted his mom, and made, and I got us a flight, her and I, to Vegas to go see Bobby. And there's, there's where we went to the hospital. And uh, he ended up uh, passing like a week later. But that's when TMZ and all that, that's when all that shit kicked in. Um, all the media started getting involved, mm-hmm. you know. But truth is, he, you know, he had been there already a week before anybody called me, called his cousin. And the way they found out is when they found him, they found him on the street uh, laying there face first. And uh, 110 degree weather in Vegas, you can imagine. Burnt came into the hospital. It was a John Doe, third degree burns down his side, and they didn't know who he was because he didn't have his wallet. So, but all he had on him was his phone. Believe it or not, but it was dead. So, one nurse got smart. They were going to tag him as a John Doe. And they said, she said, well, he has a phone. Let's charge it and see if, you know, let's see if he has a passcode. Maybe he doesn't have it on. Mm -hmm. Big dummy didn't have no passcode on it. So they were able to charge it and get into his phone. Last couple recent calls said, mom, there's what they called his mom. And that's how we all found out. Wow. Crazy, right? Yeah. Do you, do you remember like the last? Do you remember like the last conversation you guys had was just just meeting up? That was the last time. Yeah, mm. yeah last convo, like I said, was in Fresno was at that car show. Yeah, and um, we we just left the show that night. I went to my room. I had my my wife with me. My family was with me. And uh, did we go eat? I think we did. We all went to eat to dinner. Eat dinner afterwards. He brought his girl. And then, uh, that's right, he brought his girl, his daughter. And we all went to go eat, like at Applebee's or something like that. I forgot what restaurant it was. And, and um, we were shooting the shit. My in-laws, my wife, my son, my daughter, and um, just the crew. We're just kicking it, and we're like, "All right, man. Well, tomorrow, just I'll see you. You know, drive safe. I'll see you at my house. Once come come through. All right, cool." I think I texted him the next morning. Um, and he said he was on his way already, and then that was it. I think that was the last. Yeah, respects to that. That's crazy. Yeah, respects no to that. No one's ever asked me that. Well, our last that was conversation, well, no one ever asked me that. No one ever asked me the last text either. I think that was it. Shit, I might even have that in my phone still. That's crazy. The legacy lives on, though, right? Yeah. You got it going. I mean, to tell these stories. The legacy lives on because you're able to tell these stories. Keep exactly. on telling that story. That's what's crazy about it. Yeah, man. Like, yo, today, like, you guys, Lighter Shadow Brown, you guys are regarded as, like, 
one of the pioneering hip hop groups in regards to the Chicano representation. You know, how do you personally view your guys' legacy, you know, now amongst this backdrop of like a flourishing Chicano rap scene? You know, like there's Chicano and Chicano MCs that are breaking into the mainstream and there's just a broader Mexican and broader Latino representation of hip hop, you know, like how do you how do you how do you view that, you know, personally being, you know, like at the forefront of that, you know, kind of ushering that in? You know, man, I, 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 I'd say my first thought is time, right? Because we've been struggling for Africa just as a, as a culture, man. Um, stepping into, uh, you know, uh, black man's art, which is hip hop, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, as far as the hip hop goes, the acting and all that's a different thing, but it's all one race. Like, um, but we're just talking strictly hip hop and to see some of the rappers today, actually, I have a lot more respect for rappers today than I did back then, because I think, and I'm strictly thinking Chicano, I'm saying Chicano rappers, like a lot of them, man, a lot of them could flow their asses off, bro. And I'd be like, man. What was you guys, you know what I'm saying? Like, there wasn't enough of us back then. <laughs> there was a few, but, like, I swear, man, like, not like there is now. And I think this generation has grown up on pot and still Biggie and and uh, and and the game and, and ice. You can hear it mm-hmm. in their lyrics, and I'm, and I'm thankful for that. Um. You also have a lot of diverse types, and it's not just all gang West Coast gangsters rap, but it's like, like literally, like like Cap G. You know what I'm saying? He's from you know from Atlanta. Hearing him though, you wouldn't think he was Chicano, but like he's straight up Mexican, you know. And uh, <laughs> I think it's just it's dope. I really think it's just it's an art. It's not a color. Mm-hmm. It's 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 um, you know. And I never knew that growing up until I met. My manager, you know what I mean? Like, I didn't know the difference between Chicano rap. Rap is rap, but I've always felt that way. But we were so brainwashed by the media. You know, what did I say? Uh, um, uh, what did I say? I did a song with Monte Loco. It was called uh, Latino Hip Hop. And I said, uh been a minute, but <laughs> somewhere along the lines where You know, uh, like we're branded as 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 just Chicano rappers, like uh, that whole label. Mm-hmm. And the ones who saw it first, I think, were like Cypress Hill. You know, that's why they never wanted. If you if you ever looked at their cover, and they said it themselves, like you know, you look at the cover of their first album, the one with the "How I Can Kill a Man" and all that, mm-hmm. Duke of Earl and all that. Chupo 
You don't see their faces, and there's a reason why you don't see their faces, because then people will be judgmental, stereotypical, or stereotype them as Latin rappers, and they didn't want to be that. That's why they put the hoods over their head. Mm-hmm. Um, smart. Smart as the only thing they could do. Now, for me, what I change it about? Nah. I, I, uh, probably not, man, because I was introduced to that concept. You know what I'm saying? I rolled with it. I, I got educated by being brown and proud. It was in me. Brown, you can't be taught to be brown and proud. It's in you. Mm-hmm. You're proud of it. You're proud of You know what I'm saying? And and the learning curve we were talking about earlier, I started learning a bunch of stuff about my house, about just growing up. You know? I'm a Southern Cali boy, but I learned a lot about my culture and my background, which was dope. I didn't think I'd ever know. Mm-hmm. I didn't learn it in school. I learned it, you know what I'm saying, on tour. Damn, that's a T-shirt. Um, <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know what I mean? Like, I was young, bro. So going back to what you're asking, like, yeah, nowadays I just I just hope that uh, <sighs> rap now is like, it seems like it's a lost art form because of people are just, it's just too easy now. Get on the mic, get on YouTube, and throw yourself out, you know. Yeah. Get, get yourself out there. I mean, I still think today, yeah, half the people out there that are rapping probably shouldn't be. And that's just my ego, because I'm always going to have one. I'm an artist. Like, I wear that on my sleeve. Like, you know what I mean? If you ain't dope to me, you ain't dope to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I don't want to sound like the Mexican Joe Budden. You know what, <laughs> what I mean? Like, because he gets fucking, you know what I'm saying? He gets called a old head left and right. And, you know, but he, he makes some sense, though. But I also respect, you know, the newer generation as far as um, I respect their hustle. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because a lot of them, they, they grow up. Maybe they don't know Pocket. Maybe they don't know Biggie is, you know, or, or whatever. You can't expect them to know that they didn't grow up with it. You can't expect me to know Marvin Gaye if it wasn't played in my household. Yeah. So how can I respect? You know what I'm saying? Like, so how can you get me to force it down my throat? You know what I mean? It's like you're stuffing crack down my, you know what I mean? Like I didn't, I wasn't around it. So why would I like it? Mm-hmm. I'll be open to it, listening to it. But so I, I don't, I don't know. Him. I just, uh, I just hope that they come with the same work ethic. When I hear a new rapper, I just hope what's their, what's their work ethic? Like what's, what, what are they doing? Yeah. To, um, uh, you know, to, to, to further themselves, you know, uh, uh, do they respect the art for starters? You know, um, there's just a lot of things that come into play, bro, when it comes to that. But I'm happy. I'm happy for everybody that's successful at it, who's a business minded. Definitely. And a lot of these cats, they are, man. You got a lot of smart individuals out there, this generation, I will say that. But a lot of them are like also, uh, well, you got a lot of sensitive ones out there too, bro. <laughs> you, yeah, you know, uh, it's crazy though. 
You ever thought about managing some of these new artists? Working with them? Yeah, but, man, I'm I'm not a manager, bro. I'm not a... I may be a producer if I get back into that. Yeah, if there's time. Like, there's only so many hours in a day. You like to create. I do like to create, bro. But if I have the time, like... I'm so hard on myself when it comes to creativity because I'll sit there in the studio for hours. Sometimes it'll just come to me right away. And sometimes I'll get writer's block. Knocking like, beats honestly, out, beats out. Yeah, yeah bro. Man. Like, but, but you know what it is when, when, when you start doing it and you get into the swing of things, bro, it just comes like that, you know? But um, I, that's always been a, a dream of mine to, to have my own artist. Yeah, because you have the tools. No, I asked because you have tools. You have the tools, the experience from, you know, from the legacy. That's why I asked that. You know, living Maybe there. my son, bro. Yeah, my okay. son's three and a half. Nice. You know, and he's my biggest fan right now, bro. Like, it's not like jumping in the car and, you know, and say, hey, play daddy's song. Daddy, play daddy's song. Play your <laughs> song. You know what I'm saying? And I, ever since he was dude, six months, bro, I bring him on the road with me. He and Bobby, you know, Bobby's still alive, and I take him show to show. He's been on stage with me a few times, so who knows, man? Maybe he may pick up the mic one day. Continue the legacy on. Yeah, young, brown, and proud. <laughs> <laughs> now, with, with that said, man, looking back on your legacy, what would you say is the biggest uh, obstacle you had to overcome as a musician? Man. I would say patience, because... When we started out, everything just came so quick, bro. And then when you're on this wave and you're riding it, and it's like everything's just coming your way, everything's going right. And then when it comes to an end or when it comes to a pause, you're like, shit, how do I get it back? All right, well, I'll just go back in the studio and make me another record. No problem. But then that one don't hit. That one, all right, well, let me go make another one. That one don't hit. And then you start getting mad. And you start blaming others. Yo, why aren't you playing my shit? Why aren't you, you know what I'm saying? Like, dude, what, what I got to do? And then you start pointing fingers at me. And it's like, nah, man, there's where you realize that it's just, you got to have patience, bro. It's, it's, it's timing. Everything's timing. I'm not saying you're making horrible music. It's just that person may not be feeling it mm-hmm. or whoever it is. Or maybe you got the wrong person working it. You know, it could be a lot of things. But uh, I would just say, like I said, patience, man, is everything in this game, for sure. Because I've seen a lot of dudes, man, go up and then just fall flat on their face and never come back up, bro. It's crazy. Like, you know, it's a, it's a crazy game, man. It's a high is what it is. Mm-hmm. And once once you're up, you're up. But once you're down, bro, you know, I've experienced it all, man. Depression, fucking drugs, everything. And, you know, you come to a point in your life where you're like, damn, I had it all right here. Like, like what, what what's going on, man? What's missing? You know, and... uh and we've all come to, you know, we've all come to God in our own lifetime. You know, I have, Bobby did, you know, I could speak for other rappers too. But I think really 
it just comes with maturity, man. It's like, uh, you know, like you said, how am I going to continue this legacy? Well, is it through music? Maybe. Is it through being on air, on the radio? Maybe. Is it being a YouTube, you know, family or being on YouTube or just being on, on screen? Maybe. But to, to get to where I was as an artist, I don't know if that day will ever come again, bro. I don't. I'm older now, but i tell you one thing. There's still hope for something that might, and that goes back to what you said. It could be an artist that I, that I come across. It could be something, man. My, my brain is always going, bro. The creativity never stops, but it's just not with music. You know, it's with everything, bro. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. I just got that hustler mentality, no matter what it is. If I find... If I find something I like, then, you know, or am I passionate about? If you find something you're passionate about, bro, aren't you going to put it? You have to put it in there. Yeah. You have to. Otherwise, it's not going to work. That, that's, that's just it. Period. You got to put it in your own. 110%. That's it. That's it. I mean, if you weren't passionate about this magazine, then would you be doing it? I mean, why, why are you in it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know I mean? You know, and with, with that said, man, you know, what advice do you have for, you know, young artists and musicians and performers that want to get into the music business and pursue it as a career? What would be your advice to them? Just honestly, bro, just learn. I'm, I'm old school, man. You know, like I'm learn the craft, learn it, learn the art, learn who, who was who was before you, learn who is now, and. Study that. All I can go off of is what I know, how I came up. But well, there's one thing that I wish I knew, and I was learn your business side too. <laughs> That's the first thing I would say. Learn the business alongside of your art, because it's not if, it's when they try to take advantage of it, and somebody's going to. So I would learn the business side of it, and that way you can do the DIY stuff as you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. And which a lot of artists are doing right now. Shit, bro, I didn't even know what the hell. I didn't even know you can get paid off stuff until a couple of years ago. Like my man was like, I was like, dude, so it's easy to get your shit on your iTunes now. Like, what? People don't download music, they stream that shit now. And I was like, What? Let me get on this Pandora real quick and see what Ladder Shade of Brown is doing. <laughs> so but I mean, you know, it's just a different it's a different era. Yeah. New age. You know, where can uh, where can people um, follow the latest updates for shows and promotions and stuff, man? Oh yeah, everything's LSOB 1990 on our Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter. It's all the same, but I would go to Facebook first, LSOB 1990, or just search Ladder Shade of Brown pop up. All right. If you could have your fans remember you by one thing, what would it be, man? Uh, our music. music. I mean, our music. Uh, our music. What? How our music impacted them, and what it did for the culture. Yeah. And for the movement. Yo, man. With that said, you know, you got any closing comments? Is there anything else you want our listeners to know, or just some closing words of wisdom? Ooh.
enjoy life, man. You only get one. Enjoy music. You know what I'm saying? Um, you know, thank you for rocking with the show for so many years. It's going on 30 years. And uh, um, I'm very blessed to be part of a newer generation that still respects, gives us our respect and our props and treats our as if it was still popping today. Because without that being said, or with that being said, I, we wouldn't we wouldn't be torn still. Like we're getting because this whole '90s wave is just back. It's crazy, and I see more twenty-year-olds, fifteen-year-olds, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen-year-olds seeing our music. And that, man, that feeling is a rush. When I was making it and touring, it was dope because I kid you, they kept my age singing it. But now you got people of my age, not kids, that are singing it. Why? Because they put it in them. They instilled it in them. It's like our parents instilled, my mom instilled, you know, the disco movement, the oldies and everything else. That's the way it is. And that's why music is timeless. Not old school. Timeless, bro. Because it's always going to be here. 10 years, 20 years, 30. And that's the dopest thing about my song. When I'm gone, shit, 30 years from now, you don't have a new Arla Bowl playing fucking Sunday afternoon, right? <laughs> but it's going to be on the radio, yeah, right? Absolutely. Can't take that away, bro. Can't take away music. It's forever. Representing. Yeah. So thank still, you. Still representing. Thank you. Appreciate yeah, yeah. it, man. Yeah. And if I could shout out my group, I mean, my, my family, RBG fan, man, please put that in there. We're trying to push the digital game, the YouTube channel, man. Um, want to see what ODM's like as a dad now, you know what I mean, for a husband. So it took me a lot of a lot of groundwork to get here and find a woman to settle my ass down. Uh, yeah, man, I invite you to check out the channel because come see our adventures, bro. Hell yeah. Um, with that being said, uh, you know, if you hear me on the radio as well, man, locally, 991 KCI on the Empire, or just search our radio ODM, bro. Take it to the stations I'm on, and that's it, man. Pretty much. Hell yeah. Well, ODM, thank you, man. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us tonight. I really appreciate it. I thank you, man. Uh, I wish I could give you more, but that's a lot. <laughs> that's great, man. <laughs> that's great. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah. <laughs> This episode of Step Off Radio is recorded at the Justice Center, San Diego, and our music was done by DJ Root. This has been a Step Off Magazine production.